0: Thank you very much for giving us your time. We had a few questions about Sayyid Sistani's letter to those fighting ISIS in Iraq, and we wanted some of your insights about the letter and the contents and who it's addressing. InshaAllah. So, firstly, what the Syedistanis say in his letter and why is it important?
1: Bismillah rahmanir rahman rahim uh, The letter was addressed to the forces that were being mobilized in Iraq to respond to the threat of uh, ISIS uh, a very vicious group uh, that claimed to draw on classical Islamic tradition and practice and claimed to be representing Islam uh, in a struggle to Uh, implement Sharia in a struggle to uh, right historical and present-day injustices. Uh, A very dangerous uh, group, uh, both for ideological reasons because of the threat that it posed to the image and to uh, the understanding of Islam among Muslims and among non-Muslims. And also a very uh, specific threat to the life, to the property, to the dignity of uh, the populations affected by their operations, whether Muslim populations or non-Muslim populations. So the letter's importance uh, is that it's trying to restore a genuine understanding of uh, Islam's teachings with regard to uh, intercommunal relations, with regard to the prosecution of war, uh, and to right some of the wrongs that have been uh, uh, created by the teachings and by the propaganda and by the actions of these extremist groups.
0: Thank you. And who is Sayyid Sistani addressing?
1: In the in the first instance, uh, Sayyid Sistani's letter is addressing uh, those who have volunteered uh, to fight ISIS, uh, and that is uh, an act in the spirit of jihad. Uh, jihad is a, uh, a sacred obligation. Uh, it's uh, considered to be an act of worship uh, and it's considered to be something uh, that is part of a Muslim's obligation to enjoy what is right and forbid what is evil. Uh, so it's not about acquiring wealth. It's not about acquiring uh, societal prestige or advancing in a political hierarchy. Um, But it is about serving God. And uh, that is certainly not how all wars were uh, prosecuted and how wars were begun in Islamic history or in Muslim history. Uh, But it is the ideal uh, to which a Muslim would aspire. And that is why we have teachings which are found in Sunni and in in Shi'i sources uh, that, for example, before embarking on jihad, a person should... Uh, get the permission of one's parents. Now that's not something that is really relevant in a military sense, but because it is an act of worship, uh, then it should fit in with a person's other obligations to God, uh, to family, to society. Uh, So uh, the letter is addressed primarily to those who are volunteering for that struggle, and because uh, the idea of a sacred struggle that is spiritual in its essence but that has a military dimension is somewhat foreign to our uh, modern existence. Uh, the letter strives to uh, to inform uh, those volunteers of what the ideal represents. In other words, what should a mujahid be thinking about and how should he uh, be acting in order for his, uh, his actions to represent uh, that worship and that spirit of sacrifice and how it can be a spiritual journey that brings a person closer to God and not just something that um, accomplishes a military or a political goal. In other words, in this case, uh, the warfare is not to be politics by other means, but it is to be worship uh, that uh, it, it, that uh, rights wrongs that exists within society and that does not create further wrongs that will, uh, you know, cause blowback that will cause animosity that will cause destruction and uh, and damage to
0: uh,
1: innocent people and to, to others in society.
0: So along those lines, can you expand a little bit more on what role violence has in Islam? Uh,
1: Certainly, Islam is not a religion that uh, teaches pacifism. Uh, There is a priority placed on seeking peace. Uh, It was the practice of the Prophet, and it was the practice of the progeny of the Prophet. Even when a military... Um, confrontation was inevitable not to begin the battle and that was a point uh, that was made by Ahlul bayt and as Sayyid Sistani references in this letter for example in the battle of Jamal uh, the battle was uh, clearly something that any reasonable person knew uh, could not be avoided. Negotiations had already failed and the enemy thought they could win and was not amenable to negotiation. Uh, But the imam first uh, uh, tried to uh, pursue negotiation. And second, uh, even as both sides had armed themselves and were facing one another, told his army that they were to hold fire until the enemy attacked. And even after the enemy attacked, the imam did not give permission to uh, actually uh, attack uh, the enemy until such time as some of his soldiers came to him and said that not only have they shot at us but we have members of our army who have been hit, who have been killed. And then the Imam says that now you have justification to attack. So we see the extent of the character of uh, the progeny of the Prophet Ahlul Bayt of trying to avoid uh, a recourse to violence. That is before the violence is to begin. During the prosecution of that war also there is to be a discipline that is maintained on the part of somebody who is uh, fighting for a just cause. But Islam does not say that uh, that uh, violence is to be avoided at all costs. It is to be uh, avoided until such time as it becomes necessary and then when it becomes necessary it is to be engaged in, uh, in order to restore a balance and an equilibrium within society. It is violence that aims to eliminate the need for violence in the future and not violence uh, that is uh, aiming to defeat an enemy, teach a lesson to an enemy, restore dignity uh, to people uh, whose whose dignity or whose uh, uh, sense of uh, sovereignty has been uh, compromised it is meant to try to uh, create uh, a space for respectful, amicable, peaceful interaction. And so that is where uh, violence fits within the practice and the teachings of Islam according to the school of Ahlul Bayt. It's a circumscribed role and it's a role that has a very specific purpose, uh, but it is. Uh, something that is part of Islamic teaching and is not something that Muslims you know, should disown you know, or say that it's only part of the uh, historical record. It's not relevant to Muslims today. In fact, if we were able to explore, we might be able to explore some of the ways in which the Islamic teaching of warfare is more humane and more enlightened uh, than many of. Uh, the, the ways that wars are thought of and conceived and uh, discussed in, in today's
0: society and in the media. So then how are these views different from the moral values that the Western world or the modern world has arrived at and generally agreed upon, whether it's rules of war or even dealing with inter-religious or intra religious conflict in a civil context? Have Muslims and the Muslim world fallen behind on these issues?
1: In practice, I think the Muslim world has fallen behind uh, in many, uh, many different areas. And most importantly, it's fallen behind not the Western world or the modern world. It's fallen behind uh, from its own ideals and its own aspirations. The Muslim conception of jihad as an act of uh, worship focuses primarily on, or not primarily, but it focuses uh, uh, in a primary way, as a primary consideration, on the effect of the uh, actions of the warrior for the person's own soul. And when the uh, Quran talks about people who have transgressed uh, God's commandments, and it says that uh, they didn't oppress God, right, uh, but they oppressed themselves their injustice, was wrought upon their own selves. And that's a very important thing for us to remember that every oppression and the oppression that the Qur'an is talking about certainly had other victims. Uh, But the amount of oppression that you can do on another person is limited to this world. No matter how brutal it might be and how unjustified it might be. But the oppression that you do to yourself is in this world even though it might be hidden from you and from others but it's also eternal. It's an eternal oppression to the soul. And so the healing that comes in society is not just by looking at the victim, uh, but also by looking at the perpetrator and to heal that society as a whole. And so the uh, the teaching of jihad that we find uh, in our Islamic ideals and that we find reflected in this letter is to remember uh, that if you are confronting an oppressor, uh, then you don't want to become an oppressor. You don't want to just respond to the external oppression. But you want to move society in a certain direction. You want to heal. Uh, You want to have a certain discipline and regimen so that you maintain your sense of what is right, of of your morality, of your religiosity. And uh, that you can also provide that lesson for your enemies themselves and for those who may have sympathies uh, with your enemies or may have grievances, real or perceived, against you or the groups that you are working with. It's It's a teaching that foregrounds the moral reality of where conflicts come from and the harms that come to society and to society's moral standing from conflicts and from warfare. And so the just war uh, ideal that we find reflected here is not just about whether uh, the cause that you're fighting for is fair. It's not just uh, about whether the force that you are using in, in the battle is proportional. That's important. Are you fighting for a just cause? Uh, if you're fighting for a just cause, are you using a proportional amount of force? But those are secondary considerations in the sense Uh, that uh, there is also a moral arc to history and what is the effect of your use of force going to be on uh, society, on yourself, on uh, uh, the, the soldiers who are fighting with you and how can you preserve your humanity, your dignity, your morality in the prosecution of that battle. And that's a message uh, that is rooted very deeply within the teachings and within the practice of Ahlul uh, Bayt. But it's something that is absent from, uh, from uh, uh, modern understanding of war. Uh, there is an effort to demilitarize a conflict. But what I mean by demilitarizing a conflict is, uh, you know, as the letter says, sometimes hesitate to fight even if it means uh, that you're going to take losses. You shouldn't dehumanize the enemy and you shouldn't try to preserve life. uh, Even your own life or your own uh, fellow soldiers' lives as your primary consideration. The moral imperative is more important than the superficial preservation of life. Preservation of life is a moral imperative, but if there is a case where I have a perceived threat, but I'm not sure, and preserving the life of the enemy requires me to risk my own life or the life of my soldiers, as the letter says very clearly and as a practice indicated, then uh, that caution and that hesitation to take innocent life is paramount. That conception of how a war should be prosecuted, and how violence should be used. And that concern for uh, the morality of our actions and the moral effect is a a very uh, noble concept. And it's something that uh, that both people who are engaged in a military campaign and other Muslims who um, are affected by those wars in a religious sense, in a societal, or maybe even in a Uh, uh, in a personal way they need to be aware of does uh, give us uh, lessons for our own lives
0: Can you illustrate more that contrast between the ideals of Islam and the way modern warfare is carried out?
1: So it's it's a little bit of a of an attempt to get a a more accurate conception of uh, what Islam's ideals are than it is an indictment of modern warfare, because to to contrast how war is prosecuted in the modern world with the ideals of Islam is a little bit of an apples and oranges uh, oranges comparison. Uh, But it it can still be instructive uh, for us to understand the aspirations that that a Muslim should have. Uh, The focus uh, is very external in, in uh, Modern Warfare, uh, it is on uh, the justness, the justice of the cause, it is on uh, the proportionality of the use of force, um, but the effect of the war on those who are directly involved in it, uh, on their spiritual and their emotional and their mental state, and their relationship to uh, the goals that they are fighting for is not really a primary area of concern. Right? Sometimes um, we have cases where uh, soldiers have very little idea of what they're fighting for. And soldiers, in many cases, there might be um, contractors or perhaps mercenaries that are used, and I say that without pejorative intent, but uh, the the ideal that we have in Islam is that a soldier should know what the battle is about, and should know uh, the individual's person, the soldier's own position, within the goals that are to be pursued. And every step of the way, Uh, there should be an increasing respect for the sanctity of the cause and for the sanctity of human life, whether it be Muslims' lives or non-Muslims' lives. And so that is a a contrast between the ideals that we hold up in Islam and perhaps you could even go so far as to say the ideals that exist for a modern army or a modern soldier. Uh, That type of a, a the uh, system uh, is not set up in uh, professional army and uh, it's not something that uh, is celebrated or is aspired to uh, within societies. And that's perhaps why we have an acceptance of collateral damage as a necessary uh, result of war, uh, because the soldier is not engaged in a spiritual journey. Uh, It doesn't make sense for a soldier to risk uh, his life or her life. And uh, the, the attempt will be made to minimize casualties for my side, even at the cost of causing uh, many casualties of innocent people uh, on the opposite side. Not just the enemy soldiers and combatants, but even uh, innocent people. So that's a uh, a result of that contrast. Because it is a spiritual struggle, uh, collateral damage um, cannot be avoided. And Islamic law and Islamic teachings do acknowledge that sometimes there will be Uh, innocent people uh, who will be killed in a battle, but it's not collateral. It's not something that is um, peripheral to uh, the considerations that not just the leadership will make, but that each individual participant in the battle will make. Because it is primarily a spiritual struggle. Uh, It is rooted in a sense of sacrifice and in a sense of uh, worship and devotion to a greater cause, to greater principles, principles that are more important than human life, more important than my life, and more important uh, than the life of
0: uh, my enemy, so, if you can illustrate a little bit more the contrast between the Islamic ideals and modern warfare and how it's carried out. Uh, our Islamic ideals,
1: you know, in many cases, we might not be able to, uh, to hold up the practice of Muslims as an ideal. But we can hold the teachings uh, of the Qur'an and the Prophet and his progeny and the practice of the Prophet and his progeny as ideals. And that's what represents our Islamic understanding of warfare. And the main contrast is that the focus in Islam is not external. It's not on uh, the quantity or even the type of injustices that a particular ruler or government uh, uh, may commit. Uh, In the case of a war, it's not on whether the war was justified, it's not on whether the amount of force you're using is proportional or is not proportional. It's not on whether there's going to be collateral damage or not. All of those are important considerations, of course. Uh, But the primary focus is that your battle needs to be viewed as something that has a moral and a spiritual reality. And it will affect you, and it will affect uh, your opponent, And it will affect society. And you have to make sure that that moral effect that you are putting in motion is for the benefit of yourself and society. The engagement in battle should make you a a more moral person. Uh, It should make you somebody who has a greater respect for the principle of justice, uh, for mercy and compassion, and for the sanctity of human life, whether Muslim or non-Muslim, because human life was given by God and it's it sustained by God. So, when the focus is placed there, it affects the external considerations. It affects when to start a war. It affects how to fight that war. It affects decisions about collateral damage. The collateral damage is not seen as collateral. It's a primary consideration. And uh, in many cases, it might be an obligation to take a hit or to risk one's own life or one's own soldiers in order to avoid damaging uh, uh, the life or livelihood of innocent people or even of uh, my enemy themselves. The moral consideration is primary, and if that Uh, moral consideration requires me to risk my own life, to risk my soldiers' lives, then I shouldn't hesitate to do so. And and, uh, that's a very clear contrast. The focus is often on loss of life, casualties in a general sense, when we think about war today. Uh, But um, that focus superficially on loss of life Right, sometimes it can take an oppressor and an oppressed person and put them on equal footing. Right, if I am an invader, and we see examples of this in Yemen or in in Palestine, uh, usually there is not proportionality in casualties. But let's say there is. Right, this doesn't mean that both sides committed war crimes. There is inherent an inherent moral difference between somebody defending and somebody attacking, and that can't be measured quantitatively. It can't be measured uh, you know in in terms of how many casualties there were, or how many casualties were soldiers and how many casualties were civilians and so on. And that distinction is a is a is a very important distinction uh, within Islam. Uh, And it's a recognition that comes from the Quran and Quranic teachings about the nature of injustice. uh, And it comes from a focus on uh, the spirit and a belief that the spiritual realm is primary, and not that therefore the material or the exterior uh, societal effects are irrelevant, but that they flow from moral and spiritual and religious considerations. Not that they exist independently.
0: So along the lines of what you just mentioned in terms of sources, our sacred sources, where we derive those Islamic values from. Some say that if we are to be truly sincere in reading those sources, we would arrive at a, a vision of Islam similar to that of Daesh, in terms of the way you carry out warfare, in terms of your interaction with other, other people of different tra- faiths and traditions and so on. Is this letter somehow Taqiyya, or is it true to those sources?
1: So what you're asking, in effect, is, uh, you know, this letter is is all good if it's a moral message, but uh, what about the texts in Islam that Daesh uses? Some of those texts are found within mainstream Sunni and Shi'i, uh, books of law and hadith as well, uh, correct? Uh, No, I don't think that this letter is taqiyya. It's not dissimulation. Uh, But uh, what it's saying is that Islam is not defined simply by its texts. Uh, Those texts by uh, which I mean the Qur'an and the records of the sayings of the Prophet and for Shi'i Muslims uh, the progeny of the Prophet, the Imams. Those are deemed to be sacred or inspired by God in the case of uh, the sayings of the Prophet and his progeny. But they have a purpose. They fit into a moral and a religious context. And this letter focuses on the fact that Islamic teaching is uh, rooted in the intellect and the fitrah, our God-given nature. And what the intellect allows us to do, as the letter states, is to see the consequences of our actions the example that Seyed gives without mentioning any names, is that there are people who have committed great injustice in order to solidify their own rule. And because of those injustices, they created a backlash that eventually undermined their own position and power. And as he says, it's as if they undermined their position with their own hands. That's a lack of intellect. So that is part of Islamic teaching, to see the consequences of actions. And fitrah is something that operates on a more visceral level. It's not about calculations, right? because a calculating person can also act in a utilitarian way. We can try to figure out how to eliminate backlash. And then we'll end up with winning the hearts and minds, which often you know, is a, is a, a good plan on paper, but it doesn't actually end up winning hearts and minds, because it's not sincere. It can be more of a marketing than an actual, meaningful, uh, spiritual and human interaction. And so the fitra is uh, the human response that comes from a soul that is seeking to be pure, that is seeking to do what is right, that is seeking to be consistent with what our mind tells us. The texts are a part of how we understand our obligation. But the way that we can bring that together and see the harmony between the written text and the uh, visceral fitri response of our divinely inspired nature and our intellect is to try to look at the character of the Prophet and uh, the successors of the Prophet, the Imams. And to see uh, how they brought things together in order to accomplish a certain purpose and how they acted as uh, moral human beings. How they might uh, have fought in battles and taken pride in their military campaigns. Uh, But they weren't your stereotypical uh, military uh, officers or or soldiers. They were uh, very clearly viewing their military campaign, their actions in Islamic terms, in religious terms, as, as furthering of a, of a, not just a religious mission for society, but for the self, right? increasing humility and, uh, and spirituality. And so if we view Islam in that holistic way, that is best represented, not by individual texts, but by the integration of those texts in the person of the Prophet and then those who represent the Prophet in their word and deed. Uh, Then we will see that this letter is a very uh, solid attempt to understand what Islam represents and teaches today. It's not that we have all the answers. And uh, the, uh, the letter indicates that in some cases we might not really know exactly what Islam says or we might not be able to interpret how that text would be applicable in today's time because the conditions for warfare have changed. The assumptions of the international system have changed. The nature of international relations has changed. and relationships between Muslim and non-Muslim communities, for example, have changed. Uh, And the solution the letter gives is, well, if you don't know, then don't impute something to the text. Just because we don't have a simple answer, then don't ignore the complexity and impose a medieval understanding or or context to a text. Then uh, let that be resolved by those who know the full meaning of the text. And then rely on the other ways that we have of understanding our religious obligations. And if there is any doubt about whether taking of life is justified, then don't take that life. And so the the text is is not devoid of meaning, but it's devoid of it's it's possessing of it possesses meaning within a broader context. And we need to have the example of Abba and we need to have. Uh, a means of maintaining our uprightness of character which is why the letter focuses on worship and prayer uh, to preserve a um, an uprightness that will keep us in touch with our fitra that will keep us in touch with our moral sense and our, uh, our uh, divinely inspired human nature and it, it encourages us to use our intellect in approaching our Islamic sources and in approaching our understanding of our obligations. So it's only dissimulation if you think that true Islam is devoid of these considerations and it's just about taking texts and implementing those texts. That is not what Islam represents. Sunnis and Shi'i Muslims uh, may differ about uh, how to represent the uh, holistic nature, or the integrated nature of Islam. And this letter is an encapsulation of the Shi'i perspective.
0: So going to a detail of the letter, number six speaks of accepting others as Muslim. Even if they commit certain innovative practices or believe in certain innovative ideas, they are considered Muslim so long as they have said the Shahadati. What are the boundaries of Islam that Sietzistani and the larger Shia tradition accept?
1: One of the, the, the key uh, points to keep in mind uh, for many people, um, we don't realize this, um, is that uh, the determination of Islam is not made on the basis of a label we don't say that this sect or this group is or is not a Muslim the determination of whether a person is Muslim or not is whether they affirm uh, the core teachings of Islam the belief in one God and the belief that uh, Prophet Muhammad is the final messenger of God if they affirm that confession of faith then they are Muslims and uh, of course there are certain requirements they can't knowingly deny uh, part of the message of the Prophet Muhammad but those are uh, subsequent details. That is the basis. And If a person affirms that and doesn't yet know, for example, that pork is haram then uh, they are still Muslim. If they know that pork has been declared forbidden by the Prophet and they deny it, then they are in effect denying his prophethood. But the point is that the boundary of Islam is not something that we say that this group is going to be called non-Muslim. It's each individual affirms or does not affirm and is treated as a Muslim, or not treated as a Muslim on that basis. And that does give us room for some ambiguity, right? Or uh, I would prefer to call it dynamism, right? For momentum to develop, that over time an individual may not realize the implications of the confession of faith, but develops a realization of the implications the willpower to follow through and becomes better than they were in the past or their subsequent generations become more uh, aware and more practicing Muslims than the previous generations and that's one main consideration that we need to have that that Islam uh, is not something that is kind of a static determination here's the Muslims, here's the non-Muslims and we want to kind of have a um, uh, meeting out of uh, of the judgment. The second issue is, of course, that uh, the reason why that is an important distinction is not that uh, Muslims, you know, are treated as citizens and worthy of, of rights, and non-Muslims are not. Uh, but it is that everybody is deserving of justice. But the question of who is Muslim and who is not Muslim is important because Muslims uh, are not just recommended, but are deserving of greater than justice. We want to uh, interact with them in a way that can kind of restore the family, restore the uh, amicable ties that uh, uh, would have existed if there hadn't been a battle, may have existed before the battle. Or if they didn't exist, we want to develop them. And so the basis now is not going to be uh, just in justice or citizenship or the rule of law, but in something greater than that. So it is an important question to know who is Muslim and who is not Muslim, but not at the level of who is worthy of dignity and who is worthy of justice, Uh, but in terms of how much extra obligation there is after treating everybody with justice and treating people with dignity, and uh, Imam Ali's practice, and this is referenced in Sait Sistani's letter as well, uh, was to say that an attack against a Muslim is something uh, that a Muslim needs to defend, and if they're not able to defend it, or defend against it, then they should uh, should be depressed if they can't do so. And an attack against a non-Muslim member of Islamic society, what was known as a Mu'ahad, a person who has entered into a covenantal relation or a citizenship type relationship with with an Islamic society that person is also worthy of being protected, is is deserving of protection and if a Muslim cannot protect them from injustice uh, then a person should be depressed and Imam Ali actually says that if a person dies of grief then that's something that is called for because you cannot establish justice for a Muslim or for a non-Muslim so it's an important consideration, and it's not based on labels, it's based on the individual. The reason for the ambiguity is to create a dynamic uh, where as a person develops knowledge and willpower they can move towards what is right and not uh, a dynamic where they are boxed in or, or, um, or, or judged prematurely. And it's not a matter of uh, who gets to be treated as human and who does not.
0: Thank you very much.
1: Thank you for the opportunity. To sarcomando.
0: Saramayakou.
1: Parla kursa.